cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie. That was a story invented by Pastor Weems, and he later recanted it. How about uh, they have wooden teeth? Actually, I really loved rock candy, and in my late 20s, I really only had one of my own original teeth left. I had a metal contraption in my mouth full of other people's teeth and ivory teeth. That's why this dour expression most of the time when you've seen portraits of me. And lastly, I'm 273 years old today, so I have shrunk from my height of six foot two <laughs> to five nine and a half. You know, things are going along pretty well in your country until 1765 when King George III comes to the throne. Then we have a series of taxation, Staff Act, Townsend Act, Quartern Act, at the Boston Tea Party, the Boston Massacre. All of these things begin happening, and we, uh, the colonies begin having legislative sessions to determine are we going to have to declare our independence or not. And uh, Virginia at the time was uh, the bellwether colony of your country. Uh, most of your leaders were from Virginia. In fact, you have more presidents from Virginia than any other state in America. And uh, in late March, uh, there was a meeting of the Virginia Provincial Council, and uh, one of my very dear friends, Patrick Henry, in fact, how many of you heard Patrick Henry here last year? Yeah. And he gave his famous Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death speech, and then less than a month later, we had the uh, shot heard around the world. And we have another convention that we call, which you refer to today as your Declaration of Independence Convention. Before that, 1775, we had our second Continental Congress meeting, and there is a document which I would encourage you to look up on something you call Goggle or Google or Google or <laughs> something, and it's called the Declaration and Necessity for the Causes of Taking Up Arms, the most unread document in your history, and it's a, it is a precursor for your Second Amendment. This was a, a meant to be an olive branch to King George saying, we really don't want to have to arm ourselves, but you're doing all these things to us. Please, please stop. That's basically what it said. But King George III dismisses it and says, you're in open rebellion, and he removes his protective hand from us. So now we come to the, in late June of 1776, and there's a number of things going on at this convention at the same time. Number one, I'm trying to raise an army. I was made commanding general of the Continental Army in 1775 with one slight problem. We didn't have any army. And so I got one year to raise one. So in 1776, I've had a year to raise an army. We have been Franklin with a group ready to go to France to ask for their help for the war. And we had the actual writing of the document itself, primarily by Thomas Jefferson, all predicated that the convention itself is going to vote in favor of independence. Now, it had been decided ahead of time that it had to be a unanimous decision. Not that all the delegates had to agree, but that it, the, all the colonies. A little bit of trivia for you. New York is the colony that was there but really wasn't there. They never voted because they kept waiting for instructions to come back from New York. So their vote didn't count because they wouldn't vote. So really we're down to 12. And the key to this convention comes this little tiny colony of Delaware. Got three delegates, one very loyal to Great Britain and two very much in favor of independence. Two to one vote, right? Ah, but one of them, Caesar Rodney, who's very sick, 
and who has cancer, who's covered his face with a badge, a bandage, he leaves the convention early because he's not feeling well. Can't break the tie boat in Delaware. So they send after him on horseback, and they catch up with him 75 miles later and say, Rodney, if you're really a friend of penance, we need your vote. Ladies and gentlemen, Caesar Rodney is a hundred, rides a 150-mile trip on horseback with no rest. He's coming back in the middle of the night. Terrific rainstorm washes out three bridges. He has to cross three swollen rivers. He arrives at the convention. He's actually carried into the hall as the last roll call vote is being taken. So by one vote, America declares its independence. Now, this document that you refer to as the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Who can tell me whose first signature appears on this document? Hancock. When Mr. Hancock signed this, he said, his majesty will not need his bifocals to read my signature. <laughs> and he says, gentlemen, we are all going to hang together. Whereas Ben Franklin stood up and said, well, I don't know if we're all going to hang together, but we're all going to hang. <laughs> and as it turns out, those really weren't idle words, as I'll share with you in a minute. But after the last delegate signed this document, they placed it on the Bible. Every delegate in the room bowed. Many cried. A lot of prayers were said. And after several moments, Sam Adams, who was considered the father of the American Revolution said this, we have this day returned to the sovereign to whom alone all men should be obedient. No king but King Jesus. And that was the battle cry of the American Revolution. No king but King Jesus. And despite what your current government tells you today, the United States of America is a Christian nation. It was founded on the principles of Christianity. Christopher Columbus was a very strong Christian. He had had a vision since a little boy. He would take the Bible to an uncharted land. You can read about this in his own book, Lost Prophecies. And for the purpose of his voyage, I want you to listen to this, he did not make use of compass, mathematics, intelligence, or maps Christopher Columbus sailed blindly, trusting the Lord would take him to this unchartered land. And your Mayflower Compact says, We the undersigned having undertaken this voyage for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. That's why they came to America. 
All right, we'll come back to the war. You know, it's it's really kind of interesting. I, I've always taken this very humbly that I was the father of your country and everything, but, you know, I guess God did have a special purpose for me. Uh, during the French-Indian Wars, I was a, a colonel in the British Army, and in one particular battle, I had my, my men and I were trapped in a ravine, and I was a pretty imposing figure, 6'2 on a white horse, and one of the Indian chiefs said, look at yon fair warrior, and he told, told 10 of his best marksmen to do nothing but fire at me for 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, he told them to stop. And this is what he said. A great spirit guards that man. He will become the chief of a yet unborn nation. And I know that only because after I was president, he and some other chiefs came to me and he relayed this story. Actually, the reason that he came to me was they were wanted to know how to educate their youth. Now, I don't see how this would fly in, in today in your country. My advice at that time to them was, you would do well to learn our ways, and particularly the teachings of Jesus Christ. Congress will do all they can to assist you in this wise instruction. Would your Congress do that today? You know, in the beginning days of your country, you couldn't even run for public office unless you could pass a religious test. Eleven of the 13 colonies had a loyalty oath. Let me give you Delaware's. If you wouldn't sign this, you could, not only could you not run for public office in Delaware, you could not be appointed to public office. I do profess faith in Father God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I accept the Old and New Testament as the inspired Word of God. If you wouldn't sign that, you couldn't run for office. You can sow a lie about Christianity and politics. But let's go back to the war. We, we, pass, we pass this Declaration of Independence. Uh, Caesar Rodney, who I told you about earlier, comes to test the vote. See, he signed his death warrant when he signed this document because he had been told his best chance of surviving cancer was to get on a ship and go to England. He wasn't able to do that. So he died of cancer. And with 18 months, 12 of the men that signed this document were dead. Five of them had their wives in prison. Most of them had all their property seized and burned to the ground. They were hunted down during the war. But on a somewhat trivial, happy note, there were two signers who became president. Can anybody tell me who they were? Thomas Jefferson is one. No. Washington didn't sign it. John Adams. You know, Adams got so upset when Jefferson succeeded him as president, he actually didn't even go to the inauguration ball. But they became friends in later years and corresponded. And on John Adams' deathbed, he said, his last words were, Thomas Jefferson survives. But he was wrong. Jefferson died two hours earlier. And guess what day they died on? July 4th, 50 years after the signing. So we have the vote, and, and I am now giving my first... Uh, just put that over there, sir, if you would, please. Thank you. No, back here. That is someone back there. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> this was my first general order that I gave to my troops. This was July 5th of 1776. The time is now at hand when we must decide are we going to be free men or slaves, whether we are to have any property that we can call our own, 
whether our farms or villages are going to be pillaged and thus reduced to such a state of wretchedness that no human hand can deliver us. Our cruel and unrelenting enemy offers us no choice but cruelty and abject submission. The fate of unborn millions of Americans will now depend under God upon the courage and conviction of this army. Let us therefore resolve to conquer or die. Let us rely upon the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us. Let us therefore show the whole world that a free man contending for liberty in his own country is invincible against any slavish mercenary upon earth. And Thomas Paine, at the time, had written this little pamphlet called Common Sense. And I had Mr. Paine accompany me, and, he, and I'm going to read a portion of this, this first document. And I think it's applicable to today in your country. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot in this crisis, may shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of all men and women. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. But the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. This is, the first, this is the first official flag of your country. Question and answer time once again. There's 13 stripes on this flag. What do they stand for? 13 colonies. What does the red stand for? Blood. What does the white stand for? Purity. Now raise your hands if you think you really, really know the answer to this next question. What does the blue stand for? Anybody want to guess? What? Very good. The blue is for heaven. And the 13 stars were deliberately five-pointed stars so that each star would be pointed towards heaven. See, the colonists... We were praying and hoping that this new nation birthed on earth would also be birthed in the heavenlies. And that is the story of this flag. Now, in furtherance support that we were a Christian nation and we felt this revolution was based on Christian concepts, this is a flag that I decreed would fly on every single naval vessel. White for purity, evergreen tree, firm, strong, pointing upward, and it looks like a series of stars pointing upward, and the words, an appeal to heaven. The real question behind this war is, how in the world could we have won it? We have 13 ragtag colonies. We've only met twice. I've had one year to raise an army. 
The mightiest army in the world is already on our shore. How can we win? No way. But God, because it was a Christian revolution. Jesus Christ says before you fight, you must do two things. Protest. We protested 11 years. Second thing he said is you must flee. There was no place to flee. The army was all around us. And then he says you can fight. The last thing that Jesus Christ said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane was this. When I sent you into the world, did you lack for anything? No, Lord, nothing. But let he who has a purse and also a bag, let him take it along. And let he who has no sword, let him sell his purse and buy one. Because the sword was the weapon during Jesus' time. So then you can fight. In the beginning days of this war, less than 4% of the colonists supported the war. 4%. At the height of the war, the height, 25% supported the war. A full one-third gave material aid and comfort to the enemy, enlisting in their army, arming them, clothing them, feeding them, housing them, enlisting in our army as spies. And the other one-fourth or so shifted sides, didn't really care, kind of went along what was going along, and I submit to you that in your country today, things have not changed a great deal. But a small remnant, God's remnant, armed in any holy cause of liberty, can overcome Satan, no matter what form he may be in. You know, it's amazing during the war. Uh, God really used the weather in this war. The first time was Valley Forge. I lost 2,500 men in Valley Forge, not one to a British musket. They all froze to death or starved. I had very few people went absent without leave. But we persevered through that winter. And in some of my most major battles, these things happened. Number one, the British had the superior force. There was one battle where there was 38,000 of them against 8,000 of me. We were trapped against the river. But they waited two days before attacking. The weather changed. We were able to escape across the channel. This happened time after time after time. The weather would come to our aid. And the other key to this war were the militia, the Minutemen. One minute working in banks, shoeing horses, bank tellers, next minute in the militia. And the interesting thing is, is that the commanding officer of every militia unit was a church pastor. And the men in his militia unit were from his church. So many pastors fought in the war, they were referred to as the Black Regiment. One of the myths that I hear about you today, what, what is the prevailing attitude in America today about the Founding Fathers? What are they called? Deists. Deity means believing in a form of God, but certainly not in the Holy Trinity. Fifty-two of the 56 men that signed this Declaration of Independence were evangelical, born-again Christians. 
52 of them were. I thought it might be interesting for you to hear some quotes from some of our non-Christian founding fathers. I have carefully examined the evidences of the Christian religion, and if I was sitting on a jury upon its authenticity, I would unhesitatingly give my verdict in its favor. I can prove its truth as clearly as a proposition ever submitted to the mind of man. Alexander Hamilton. The cause of America is in great measure the cause of all mankind. Where, say some, is the king of America? I will tell you, friend, the king of America resides in heaven. It's Thomas Paine. Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments. It's Charles Carroll, one of the signers. Governments should not give the rights essential to happiness. We claim them from a higher source, from the king of kings and lord of all the earth. John Dickinson. Now here's a quote from a deist. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of him whom you particularly desire, I think his system of morals and his religion as he left them to us is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. It's Ben Franklin. And he was a deist. Mercy and grace and favor did come by Jesus Christ. And also that truth which verified the premises and predictions concerning him. John Jay. I give and bequeath my soul to Almighty God that gave it to me, that through the meritorious death and passion of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to receive absolution for all my sins, it's George Mason. And your second president, John Adams. The Christian religion is above all the religions that ever prevailed or existed or modern times is the religion of virtue equity, and humanity. As far as your government, people try to say, well, the Constitution isn't founded on the word of God. It has nothing to do with the Bible. Well, you might want to look up the definition of the word ordain. We hereby ordain and establish this Constitution. It was, it was ordained by God. In fact, the five things in your preamble all have biblical roots. The five things in the preamble all have biblical roots. In my first inaugural address, this is after the war, and we have won, I said this. It would be peculiarly improper to omit, in this my first official act, my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over us and then the universe and who presides in the countries of nations and whose providential aid can supply every human defect. In tendering this homage to the great author of every public and private good, I assure myself it expresses your sentiments, not less than my own, nor those of my fellow citizens at large. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which we have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential 
agency. And in Washington's farewell address, he said, reason and experience both foretell us that national morality can prevail with the exclusion of Christian principles. You know, James Madison, the author of your Constitution, said, we have staked our whole future on the Ten Commandments of God. And John Jay, your first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, said, it is the duty of this Christian nation for people to select and prefer Christians to be your rulers. What time is it, sir? See, separation of church and state is the biggest lie ever sold the American public. I'm going to quote to you a Supreme Court case, 1892. This is Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. Now, you people in Texas, and particularly Arizona, will appreciate this. In 1892, it was illegal to import foreign labor. Illegal to import foreign labor. But the church wanted to bring in a pastor from England. And the Supreme Court, in its decision in 1892, studied the, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, numerous writings and articles, and in their decision, they said this law was never meant to apply to Christianity. And, I don't know what's here somewhere. There is no dissonance in these declarations. These all affirm that America is a religious nation and that they speak to the voice of the entire people. Our laws, so this is the Supreme Court, our laws must be based upon the teachings of the great Redeemer. Our laws must be... This is United States Supreme Court case, 1892. This is a Christian nation. We are founded to legislate, propagate, and secure Christianity. And they quote two... Supreme Court cases from two states. People, see how this would play out in New York today. People v. Ruggles, 1811. This man said Jesus Christ was a bastard. He's in prison for six months. Fined $300. And the Supreme Court of New York said, if you attack Jesus Christ, you attack America. And another case in Philadelphia, basically, Beth versus Commissioner, said Christianity, general Christianity, has always been part of the common law of Pennsylvania. This is Pennsylvania. Then they, this court case quotes a 1844 United States Supreme Court case. Now, this is 1844, not that far from 1776. This is Vidal versus as executors. Gerard was a Frenchman who left $7 million to this university. Now, that's a lot of money today. Can you imagine what it was back then? With a stipulation, you can't teach from the Bible. Anybody ever heard of Daniel Webster? He argues this case for the school. They want the money, right? <laughs> Supreme Court says in 1844, why may not the Bible be taught in the classroom? Where else can the purest forms of morality be learned? Particularly from the New Testament, the Bible is an appropriate textbook for the classroom. That's in 1844, 
United States Supreme Court case. So how did we get to where we are today? What happens in 1961? Prayer. Prayer's taken out. Why? On what basis did they do it? Here's all these Supreme Court case decisions. But this Supreme Court in 1961 says, Aha! We found a letter from who? Thomas Jefferson. A letter. And you can blame all the trouble on the Baptists. I'm sorry. But the Danbury Baptist Convention had heard a rumor that we were going to a one-nation religion. So they wrote Thomas Jefferson a letter, basically saying, is this true? And Thomas Jefferson writes them back a four-paragraph letter the third paragraph says, oh, no, I hold with you that solemn act of the entire American people which declared that their legislature, their legislature should enact no law respecting the establishment of religion, thereby creating a wall of separation of church and state. Now, I could be wrong, but you look like a fairly intelligent group of people to me. So I'm going to ask you some questions. It's not a trick question. It's not, it's not an outside-the-box question. Just give me your natural answer. At your house, let's just say you have some very small brothers and sisters, and you have a swimming pool, and your parents have built a fence around the swimming pool. Why did they do that? Keep your brother and sister out. Very good. Medieval days, castles, these huge walls. Why did they build these huge walls? Keep everybody in, keep everybody out. Keep everybody out. Why did the communists, Richie, build this huge wall across Berlin? Why, you're not Richie, I'm sorry, you look like my friend. Anyway, why did they do it? Why did, they build the, why did the communists build this wall in Berlin? They wanted, but what would, why did they actually put the wall up? Keep them in. Oh, there's Rich. Okay. <laughs> Bottom line, folks, walls are built for one reason. And Jefferson clearly meant government was to stay out of religion. But they deliberately misinterpreted it. Why? It's part of the agenda to take Christianity out of America. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, said this, Mankind never invented a more effectual method of extinguishing Christianity from a nation than by declaring that it was improper to read the Bible in the classroom. And President Lincoln, who came after me, said, The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation is the philosophy in the future of that nation. Do you know there are, his, there are curriculums going on in your country today being approved by school districts in your country today where American history is starting from 1865 under the theory that what happened before is irrelevant. You take away a nation's basis, what it was founded on. You rewrite its history or ignore it. You take away its principles and foundations, that is a nation that can easily be changed and driven into a one-world government with a one-world religion. And I submit to you 
That is what is happening in your country today. See, your, we- your enemy today is... <laughs> in my day, it was easy to see. He wore red. <laughs> but today, our battles against principalities, spiritual powers of darkness... See, Psalms 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. See, I believe God's message today to, and warning to America today is Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. I have this against you. You have forgotten your first love. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming quickly and I will remove your lampstand from its post. Do you not think that all these weather problems and disasters that you're having are just a matter of bad luck? Do you think maybe God's trying to get our attention? The sad thing is the only thing that's going to save America is the people in this room. But you are the enemy. Homeland Security says you're the enemy. Have you ever looked at the list of who the terrorists are in America today? It's born-again Christians, people who believe in the Second Amendment, people who perceive there's not enough being done on immigration, former military. If you read that list, I think there's 20, and I think I make 19, personally, of the 20. And if you look at it, you'd be surprised at yourself. So this is what's happening. We've... If you want to keep your country, the time has come, like Thomas Paine said, to take a stand. So he says, well, what, what can one person do? But remember, we only had 4%. The Bible all through history, one person has meant, or a group has turned. I would encourage you to get involved as precinct committeemen. I would encourage you to run for political office and vote not for Republican or Democrat, but vote for the most godly person that you can find and support that person. Because if you want to turn America around on whatever basis you can do it, we're going to have to get back to where this country started going wrong, and that is to put Jesus Christ, prayer, and the Bible back in the classroom of the United States of America. And we need to fight to keep under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. Some of your schools don't even do that anymore. You've got to fight to read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You've got to fight to keep in God we trust as your national motto. We've got to turn back to God. And he does, as we had to hold out the olive branch to Great Britain, God holds out the olive branch to us. And this is a verse you've probably heard many, many times. And that's 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And if you know it, say it with me. If my people, that's you, are called by my name, humble yourselves, repent, and turn from your wicked ways, who's going to hear from heaven? I will hear from heaven, and I will heal your land. That's God's word. If we will do that, he will heal our land. And I'm going to leave you with the, the words of a president from your era 
Ronald Reagan, who said this, if America ever forgets that you are one nation under God, you will be a nation gone under. And Paul in Galatians 5.1 said, it was for your freedom that Christ died. Stand firm and never again be subject to a yoke of tyranny. See, in the darkest days of World War II, Winston Churchill said this. The time may come that you must fight. And it's best to fight when you know the chance, the odds are in your favor, and you can count the cost. You may have to fight when you cannot count the cost nor the outcome. There may be a worse time. You may have to fight when there's no chance of victory. But the, out, but the alternative is unthinkable. And I'm saying to America, don't make the third choice. God bless you. And God, please bless the Republic of the United States of America. Thank you. Wasn't that great? You're going to have